Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. So here in this unique narrative that I, I didn't in initially plan on coming to this passage, but as I was studying and preparing, I thought this is a great example, a great story, a great account to illustrate our rule of formation this morning that says that we become what we behold. The thing that our attention is fixed upon, whatever things even, have our central focus in life, that are the things that are consuming us and drawing us in. Another way to say this is whatever we're beholding is going to shape who we are. It's going to shape what we do. It's going to affect who we become. Um, attention. I, I wanted to start by just with a few ideas about attention. Let's begin with something I think is really important to start with, and that's the complexity that is to attention, that, that is attention. There's a complexity to attention, meaning uh, each person in this room, we could say, has their own relationship with attention. Are you paying attention? Okay, good, get it? All right, in this room, we, we all pay attention differently. It's true. I mean. Let's, actually, let's do a poll. Let's do this. How many of you guys would say that you're pretty good at paying attention? By the way, I know the answer to this because I see your face every weekend, but I just want you guys to see. All right. So you're pretty good. At, it's okay. You're pretty good at paying attention. You, you, you lock in. You got it. Okay. How many of you guys would say you're decent? You're a decent, attentive person. Okay. How many of you guys aren't even paying attention to me right at this moment? Right? Okay. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Joe goes. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> Some of us, we should say, we struggle to pay attention. Attention is a complex thing. There's complexity to attention. There's a variety of different attention spans and attention abilities. Well, despite our differences, there is one thing with attention that we all have in common, and that's our capacity. Our capacity. Each one of us, though we have different attention spans, the one thing we have in common is we all have a, to some degree, a limited capacity to attention. Uh, God doesn't have, let me illustrate it this way, a limited capacity for attention. Something that's amazing about God, just a theological truth about who God is and how awesome and big and great he is, God is able to pay attention to everything and everyone all the time, all at the same moment. That's just incredible. Like, God is able to pay full attention to everything and everyone all the time at every, at every same moment. It's something unique to who he is, and that's certainly not who we are. Despite how great you are at paying attention, the truth is we all pay it. We all have a limited capacity of it, and we really, we get to choose who gets it and what gets it and who deserves it. Now, it's because of this that we should also talk about the modern times we're in, and the currency of attention. This, this, by the way, isn't a new thing. Okay? Marketing has always capitalized on the attention of, of people to, you know, to lure them in to, to know whatever it is that we're selling. I mean, you can't sell something that people aren't aware of. So attention has always been a big part of any business strategy. But the moment we're in today is a, a moment in time where attention, the attention of people, your attention, I'm not sure if you know this, but your attention has never mattered more to the marketplace. 
to big tech, to, to, to the big corporation, your attention. Um, recently, Netflix was, was interviewed. Actually, it started about four years ago. Netflix had made a pretty bold claim about their aspirations, and their desire was with uh, HBO Max is, was kind of taking off with their streaming platform, and their, their, their kind of mantra was, we want to become HBO, fully HBO, like which was the movie you know, platform. We, Netflix wanted to become HBO, they said, before HBO became Netflix. That was like their thing. Recently, this was 2019, I read up on this, uh, they were uh, followed up on and their, their top executive was asked about like, how is that going? Like, you're Netflix now, I'm pretty sure you beat HBO, like you're Netflix. And, and their response was, actually, no, we're not competing against HBO anymore. They said, our new competitor is Fortnite. Fortnite. Should I take a moment to share about my addiction to Fortnite? I'm not sure if I should. No, I won't do that. I won't confess that. Okay, let's move on. Isn't that interesting? The number one competitor in the eyes of Netflix isn't Hulu. It's not Amazon Prime. It's not whatever other video streaming service you, you tend to prefer. It's a video game service. And the reason why they said Fortnite is our biggest competitor is because we are competing for attention. Because if we have attention, then we have your wallet. And it's more than just the streaming services that we give binging hours to, or video games. It's everything these days. It's your social media account. You know that, right? That your social media account knows you and knows what you like to look at and how long you like to look at it and why you like to look at it. And it will tailor itself to keep you attentive to what's next. You might like this. Here's a recommendation. It's like, who are you talking to that you know my recommendations? Could you be spying on me? You know, like, do you know what's going on in my life? What's up with that? Of course it is. It's all driven by dollars. It's all driven by, listen, a new currency. Everybody is driven by two things today in the market. It's how do we get people's attention? How do we keep their attention? I have to mention now the fourth thing in light of this, which is something maybe we don't think about as much, and that's this idea of the consequence of attention. Certainly there's financial consequences in the marketplace to who gets everyone's attention. If they get the attention, they get the followers, they get the followers, they get the dollars. But could there be more at stake to our attention and who or what we give it to? There is more at stake. And Jesus here, even in this passage, is illustrating that when he is calling his disciples to do something that he, he does over and over again with them, which is to get their attention back on what they need to focus on. Um, it's, it's one of many accounts for Jesus where the disciples are missing what he's trying to do because their attention is elsewhere. The consequence of their attention in this moment in the passage we just read is they're not able to see and fully receive in that moment the incredible wonder of what Jesus is trying to do. He's inviting them into a kingdom project that's going to move forward by the power of the Spirit through their lives and they're focused on the nation of Israel. He's sending them to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And their attention is on this kind of balloon event that just happened. And they're staring, looking. And this, this kind of happens time and time again. It's like a lot of times Jesus is making a point and he has to. I kind of think of like when parents are trying to take pictures of their kids. You ever seen that event? 
And it's like, hello, hey, boo-boo, hey, hee-hee, right? And then the whole family's like, ah, you know, behind the camera. It's like the funniest thing. It's the funniest thing to watch. Sometimes the disciples are struggling to, they, they need, back here, you know, come on, ka, ka, bring it back. Bring it back. There's consequence to your attention, not just what comes out of your wallet, but the principle that we see here in Acts chapter 1, and the principle we see all throughout Scripture, is the consequence of your attention is who you become. You and I are becoming more and more of whatever we're giving our attention to. Because your attention, though it is somewhat of a commodity, it's not separate from who you are. So when I give that thing or that person or that show or that whatever, fill in the blank, my attention, I'm actually giving them me. Here's my life. Here's my mind. It's a, in a sense, it's a form of worship. And same with worship. We become what we worship. We become what we behold. See, humanity was created to give attention, to behold God in relationship with him. We see this from the very beginning. God creates Adam and Eve to be in focused relationship with him. And then from the very beginning, humanity has struggled to pay attention. We get distracted by all these other things that form us into all these bad different ways that, aren't, that isn't the intention that God initially had. In fact, when you read the Genesis account of mankind's fall, a big portion of their fall was what they saw and how they were distracted by the fruit that was forbidden to them. And the same is true today as well. It, it's no coincidence that one of the most commonly, did you know this, one of the most commonly used commands and words in the scriptures is the word behold. It's used over, isn't this interesting, 586 times in the Bible, God is like shouting to humanity saying, pay attention. The thing that you're focusing on is shaping you one way, but pay attention, I have something more for you. Look at me, listen up, focus in. That's what the word behold means. A lot of different Hebrew and Greek words for it, but they all, they all generally mean give your central focus here. You might have been in an environment before where you heard someone say, you know, may I have your attention, please, right? What that person is saying is, behold, focus, lock in on this moment, because I have something to say, I have something to do. Uh, it's interesting, this is how Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist says, behold, there's Jesus, take a look. All throughout the life of Jesus, there are these great moments, these great teachings where, where, where whether it's the authors or Jesus himself is saying, behold, take a look, look what's happening. I was thinking about this. I think about my own life and my own journey to Jesus. And I think this is a great way to characterize what it means to be a Christian. First of all, a Christian first, before being a Christian, is a human. And the natural proclivity of humanity is distraction. A Christian is someone whom God has got the attention of. That's really what a Christian is. God has got your attention in some way. Maybe, maybe you look at your life and you go, I can count back on a handful of times God has said, behold. God has showed up in my story. I was distracted and he said, look here. Listen, that's, that's truly the story of a Christian. And that's the life of a Christian with this principle, this rule. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, letting him be the one that we behold and allowing him to transform us in the process. When I first became a Christian, this was one of the first Bible verses that I memorized. It was assigned to me to be a, at a discipleship school I was in. It was assigned to me to be kind of my theme verse for the school I was at. And, 
It was a verse I was to memorize, and it illustrates the point we're saying right here. I love this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all, with unveiled face, here's the word, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, the Lord knows that we become what we behold. And so the way that he outlines what our formation in Christ looks like is not that we just behave our way into transformation. Behave better. Behave like Jesus. Go. That's not what he says. It's through this relationship of one person beholding another. As we're beholding the glory of the Lord. And I love this because it's, it's even in a more intense and intimate way than Moses did. That's the context. Moses knew God, the Bible says, like a friend knows a friend face to face. And Moses had to veil his face because of the glory that was upon him after encountering God face to face. But we get to take the veil off. Through Jesus, the veil has been torn. Isn't this an incredible invitation? You and I, if, if you've just forgotten this, let me remind you for a second. You have not just been saved from some things in your life. As a Christian who's been saved by Jesus, you have been saved to some incredible things. One of which is you get to have a face-to-face -face relationship with the living God. That's unbelievable. You get to know him. Not because of your performance, not because you've performed your way to get a seat before him. You know, you got to the front of the line, you get to talk to him. No, but because Jesus came and brought you to that place. He put you before his Father to behold him. And it's in this relationship where we're focusing on the Lord, where we're beholding him, that we're transformed. So uh, maybe the question of application today, in light of this principle that we see in formation in Christ, we see it in the marketplace, we see it in life, we become what we behold. So maybe you could just ask yourself this morning, what is the central focus of your life? Could you call yourself, maybe you're not a perfect believer or a perfect behavior, but could you say about you that you are a beholder of Jesus? Can that be true of you? Can that be said of you? Can you say that of your life? Or is there some other things? And when we talk about attention, what we mean is like the central focus. There's peripheral things in life. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't ever look at other things in this world. There's not other things to look at. But the idea is there's a central lens. There's a central vision through which you see everything. A lot of times what can happen is God moves from center and he becomes peripheral. There's other things we get our eyes on. So, so what is that for you? Just think about that. Recognizing that whatever that is, that's shaping you. What are you beholding? What are you centrally fixed on? The invitation, again, from the Bible all throughout is come near and behold Jesus. And as you do that, watch him change you. Now, this is, this is great in theory. I think it's probably a little bit more helpful with some practice. So let's talk about what we actually mean by beholding Jesus and being formed by him as we do. Here's a couple ways to do that. First way to think about this is as a Christian, I want to be someone who's beholding the words of Jesus. Part of any relationship is knowing what the person is saying, what they're communicating. Their words are revealing what's in their heart. And this is the first way that we want to be formed by Jesus, and it's by beholding his words. I mean, time and time again in Scripture, anytime the word behold is used, it's often followed by something that God is saying. I think Isaiah, behold, I'm doing a new thing. 
Think of, think of the end of Revelation where that, that comes to pass, and it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. So it's some truth that, that is worthy of our attention. And in Scripture, we're called to behold the words of Jesus. Um, it's most, I think, uh, explicitly described here in John chapter 8 as Jesus himself says this. There were those who were believing in him, and he says to them, If you abide in my word... He says, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is what Jesus says for his followers. First of all, he makes some assumptions about humanity that the the religious leaders of the time didn't like him assuming, which is that you need to be free. That's the first thing he's he's assuming here. That, That there's an abiding that takes place in your life that's going to liberate you from something. You're enslaved is the idea. And then the Pharisees at that time and the Jews would go on to say, we've never been enslaved by anyone. That's what they say to Jesus. Jesus is like, well, you just, I mean, no offense, but you just got to read history. And that's definitely been a pattern for Israel in history. So that's not true. And they were thinking very much in terms of physical bondage. But Jesus goes on to talk about a slavery that humanity is bound in as he begins to expound on, this is pretty heavy, who their dad is. He's like, well, here's your, who your father is. If you're not sure who your dad is, he's the devil. That's what he tells them. He's like, your dad's the devil. Sorry to break it to you. It's like, who's the daddy? The devil, all right? Um, that's the situation. And, and he says, you're under his power. And he says this about the devil. He says, you're bound by him. And, you're, and in doing so, you're bound by someone, he says, whose native tongue is lying. You're bound by lies, is what he's saying. Ever since the beginning, Jesus tells these, 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 uh, this, these multitude of people, that they have been bound by lies, that the biggest problem in their life, the biggest thing they're enslaved to, is ideas. I mean, you think about the fall of man. This is true of Satan. Anytime Satan, the devil, which is a real spirit, an embodied spirit in Scripture, a real person, not just an idea, and anytime he's, he's described in Scripture, he's often described in those terms as someone who's a deceiver, someone who's a liar, and that's his method of, of attack. If you look at the Garden of Eden, for example, when When Lucifer came to tempt the fall of the first humans, he didn't come at them with physical force. He didn't come come against humanity with this sort of military strength. How did the fall of humanity happen? It happened through an idea. Through the introduction of a thought. Did God indeed say? And that tactic has continued throughout the centuries. We're, We're still today in more ways than one, fighting out of slavery to false ideas. You ever felt that before? You ever come face to face with a lie that you've been bound by? That you've been enslaved by? Uh, A book I'm reading recently called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer uh, describes it this way, the three enemies of humanity in the world. There's the devil, the Bible talks about a real devil. There's the flesh, and there's the world or the system around us. And these three things, it's like the anti-trinity of the battle we're in. And we face these enemies on a daily basis, and they work together. First, the devil brings deceptive ideas. And those deceptive ideas just so happen to coincide perfectly with disordered desires within our heart. That's why, by the way, your temptations are like tailor-made for you. You ever notice that? And they are normalized, it makes it worse, through a sinful society. So it becomes easier and easier to believe these lies and live into these lies. And this is the 
the context that Jesus comes into. This is what he realizes about humanity. The biggest problem with humanity is the lies that have permeated our minds about who we are, about who God is, about what God says. And I mean every facet of your life, from your personality to your sexuality, to your relationships, to how lovable or unlovable you are. I mean, everything about what we believe to be true. We all have our own in neurology and therapy. You know, it's called mental maps. We all have our our maps of reality of what's true, of what's going to happen. And without Jesus, the implication that Jesus is making is that without Jesus, we are bound to these lies. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I have a tool that can bring freedom in your life. I have a liberation to bring, and it's my word. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to bring you my word. And if you, he says, abide in my word, I think of beholding when I hear that phrase. If you fix your attention upon my word and what I say is true, and if the source of truth is not your experience or your feelings or your conjecture or culture, but if you actually humble yourself to face the reality of what's true in my word, as hard as it could be sometimes, the greatest freedom is going to be the result. The f- greatest freedom is going to come. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. A relationship with God's word, beholding his word, allowing God's word to be the weapon that liberates me from lies. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to do this, whether it's studying scripture yourself, memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture. You know, one of the reasons why we have community groups is we want to steer intentional conversations about scripture. Like that's how I, by the way, get the word most packed into my heart is I talk to other friends about it. You ever had that? That's like the best way for me to have the word just really be sown in my heart is to have relationships where we can digest God's word together digest the truth together. And sometimes there's, in those conversations, there's things that are said that someone goes, hey, that's not true, what you just said. Here's the truth of God's word into that situation. Romans 12, 2 says it this way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does the renewal of my mind happen? Well, it happens by beholding the reality of what's true in scripture. I got another verse here. I love this. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor, sit, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, or God's word, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Are you beholding the words of Jesus? What truth is navigating and leading your life? Third, uh, secondly, we also want to be those as Christians who behold the ways of Jesus. We behold the words of Jesus, but as disciples, we also want to live into the way of Jesus. That's a, essentially what a Christian is, is someone who says, I, I tend to go my own way, but I agree that Jesus' way is much better. And by the way, in every facet of life. I mean, that's what we've admitted. We've said our, our tendency is to do what Isaiah 53 says. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all have our own way. But we say, Jesus, I think there's this great song that says it too. It's so much better your way. I've done things my way, but I'm following you, Jesus, because you want to teach me your way. Now, this is something that's also really cool about Moses, about relationship with God. 
Um, this is the product of being in relationship with someone up close and personal. Um, it, it's one thing to know someone from afar, but there's probably in your life people who don't just know kind of the general facade you have, whether it's on social media or in public, but, but you, if you, here's what good friends are. People that know your ways, you know what I mean? Like your things. You know, you met him, he's great. You say, I do, honeymoon. And then all of a sudden, like the ways, he's got some ways. The way he does things, the things that, you know, they don't, they don't show that in the ad, you know? It's like, it's just... And you start to go, he's got ways, you know? And there's moments where you're like, his ways. He's got this way, the, this, the way that he does this. It's like the way that she does it. And it can be, obviously, frustration points because we all like our own way better, right? But it's also a, a truth about relationship. There's some things about that person you know and love that knows and loves you, those people. They know your ways, man. They know what makes you tick. They know what makes you happy. They know what makes, brings you joy. They know you up close and personal. Uh, that's actually a lot what it's like to be a friend of God, to know God. There's a distinction in Psalm 133 between someone who knows God at a distance and someone who knows God personal like that. Psalm 103.7 says that God made his ways known to Moses. Notice the difference here, though. His acts to the children of Israel. Israel could tell you everything they learned in their VBS class about all the things that God has done. They could articulate to you the best explanation of the gospel ever, but there's something about Moses that was distinct from Israel. Moses couldn't just tell you the things that they do. I mean, anybody could tell you what somebody does, if you have some knowledge of it, but it takes close relationship to know someone's ways. That's how closely Moses knew the Lord. It's what we're invited into as well. It's what Jesus invites his disciples into. That's why he says, come follow me. Come follow me. Come learn my ways. Come, come see what I'm like. Come get up close and personal. And this is the desire of a Christian's heart. There, there's, a, there, there's a humility here that acknowledges, Jesus, I, don't, I can assume that I know your way because I was raised in church. I can assume that I go your way because I'm not like those people. But Jesus says, come close. And here's the, the call of Scripture is to be imitators of God as dear children, to come close, to know his ways, and to go his ways. Uh, this was the characterization of the early church, of the first Christians. They were called Christians for the first time at Antioch, where people looked on at these Christ followers and said, they remind me of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I guess that's where Christian came about, that title. It wasn't, you know, I would have loved that this, this to be a story that was in the book of Acts. It's not there, but there, there was no, like, what should we call ourselves meeting for the early church, you know? What should we be? The Jesus peeps, you know? The cloud walkers. The God squad. All right. Okay. They're, they were called the people of what? First, the way. Those are the people of the way. They, they're like, they spend time with Jesus, they learn his ways, and, and they're not taking on the culture of the world. They recognize their susceptibility to imitate what's around them. Culture has that power to do that. Unless you go, man, I'm not, not me though. I'm an individual. It's like, well, you talk a certain way, you dress a certain way, you drive a certain way, okay? Especially you come to Boca, it's like, oh, that's the way they drive. That's the way here. We're all products to some degree of our culture. 
church culture, home cultures. We come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, we want your kingdom culture. We want your way. Teach us your way. Help us not fall into the trap that thinks we think that make us think that we know the way, that we're going the way. We want to follow your way. Teach us your way. We get to come close to Jesus and experience that in him, to imitate him, to walk with him. I love this prayer, Psalm 86, 11. Here's a great prayer to pray. Lord, teach me your way. Such a humble prayer. Don't assume you know and go the way. Lord, teach me your way. Uh, this next month, we're starting a, a study in the Gospel of Mark. You know what it's called? It's called The Way. That's what it's called. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel out of all four, and it, it contains the least amount of teaching from Jesus. Gospel of Mark. It's also the most fast-paced gospel. Everything's immediately. Immediately Jesus did, did this. Immediately Jesus did that. And the focus of Mark is for us to observe the way Jesus lived. That's what it's all about. The way he loved, the way he served, the way he died, the way he loved. I said that twice. The way he spoke. So we're going to study the gospel of Mark because we want to say, Jesus, teach us your way. We want to live into your way. Behold, thirdly, write this down. We're almost there. Behold the work of Jesus. A Christian is someone that's seeking to be formed by the ideas of Jesus' words, by the example of Jesus' way. We want to follow his example. We've got to know his way to go his way. And a Christian is someone who is keenly focused on and centered around the work of Jesus. This is, this is one particular thing that gets a lot of press in Scripture for us to behold. This is one of the main things that the Bible is constantly assuming that we are going to push aside. Especially in the church, there's this thing called the work of Jesus, which is the gospel of Jesus, what, what God has done in Christ for people like you and me. And there's a tendency for us to let the gospel be the starting line I cross that I leave behind as I keep going. As one author said, in Scripture, we have made the gospel the diving board that we jump off into the pool of Christianity. But when you study Scripture, the gospel is the pool. The gospel is what we're diving deeper and deeper into each and every day. What are the implications of the cross for you and me? That is not something you outgrow or outlearn. That is something that needs to be brought back to center each and every day because of how peripheral it can become. So, so you see this uh, all throughout uh, the life of Jesus. The first, this, we're going back to Christmas. Check this out. Luke 2. Now they were in the same country, sh shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Check out this. Behold, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So here's another one of those examples of God saying, humanity, pay attention. I'm doing something. I'm saying something. There's something to look at. It says, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold. We got two beholds in this section. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So from the very beginning of Jesus' life, this was the thing that all of heaven was shouting to pay attention to. A savior is here. Focus. Don't just glance. Behold the work of Christ. Jesus gets a little older. He's in his 30s now. He's beginning his public ministry. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by, coming toward him, and John the Baptist says, Behold, take a look at the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. Regardless of what we've made the cross, it is certainly the center stage of history in Scripture. Is the cross the center stage of your and my life? The work of Jesus. What is this work that Jesus is doing by taking away, that's so beautiful, the sin of the world? He's going to take away the sin of the world personally. He's going to take it upon himself. He's going to take away the sin of the world permanently. That if you are in Christ, your sin is permanently removed from you. And he's going to take away the sin of the world powerfully in a way that no other system of religion can, in the way of no other works-based religion can, he's going to take away the sins of his people, the sin of the world. In doing this, this incredible work of Jesus, here's what he does. He makes first, I love this, sinners righteous. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of the cross. This is how we get to be righteous. It's the only way we get to be righteous. Self-righteousness won't cut it, won't do it. But through Jesus, even us who are sinners, we don't get to be kind of sinful, kind of righteous. We get to go from sin to righteousness. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, on the cross to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see yourself as righteous? You go, no, well, maybe you're looking through the wrong lens. Maybe you're looking through the lens of your behavior, and you go, I'm not righteous. And the scriptures say, yeah, you're right, actually, apart from Jesus. There is none righteous, no, not one. But a Christian is someone who knows who they are apart from Jesus. That's humility. But listen, maturity is where you go, I know who I am in Jesus. And I'm the righteousness of God in him. Uh, not, Not through the lens of my behavior, but through the lens of the sufficient, complete, and perfect work of the cross. He didn't kind of take away my sin. He didn't take away some of my sin. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the, is the only one who does for us what we need desperately, and it's to be made right with God. Jesus does that through the blood of his cross. He, he doesn't just make sinners righteous. Jesus also makes slaves children. This is so beautiful. We read that there in John 8. Slaves of sin not only get liberated from their slavery to sin, but they get adopted into the family of God. No longer a slave, I'm a child of God. Children of God, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. This is the, this is the if you're a Christian, this is for you. This is true for you. Maybe you go, wow, that hasn't been central in my life. That's been peripheral. Behold it. I love 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed and lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Are you centered on this in your life? What you behold affects who you become. I'm telling you, there, there's no motivation for life in Christ like the love of Christ. It goes beyond that. Jesus doesn't just make sinners righteous. He doesn't just make slaves children. Jesus has this incredible gift to make enemies ambassadors. This is what he does. The Bible says by nature, we are, we are our enemies of God. There's hostility between us and God. We, we've joined the losing team, humanity. We didn't, we didn't pick the right team from the beginning. We, we joined the fallen angels in their rebellion. We, we, we positioned ourselves through sin. We positioned ourselves as enemies of the one who loved us and created us. But it's only God who, who, who has this ability um, 
God is really good at winning over his enemies. He's really good at that. He's really good at, at people who are his enemies. Um, the Bible says that while we were enemies, what did Jesus do? He loved us. He demonstrated his love for us. He died for us. And God makes his enemies his friends. And then he, he makes his enemies his ambassadors. He goes, now you're going to represent me to the world. That, that's the work of the gospel. He makes his enemies his ambassadors. The greatest example of this, probably in the whole Bible, is going to be who? The Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, an enemy of God that becomes one of the most fiery and effective ambassadors for the message of Jesus. Paul says this about his life. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God, isn't this crazy? As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So this is what an ambassador for God looks like. I represent him. And when I share the gospel with someone, do you know this? When you're at your workplace, when you're in your, um, your wherever that is, your kind of sphere of recreation, uh, vocation, when your heart is set on representing the love of Jesus to people around you, you're not alone in that. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. And when, when, you, when you say to someone, when you see their brokenness and you say, hey, I want to I call you and invite you to find wholeness in Jesus, it's like God is pleading through you when you do that. Wow, you're his ambassador. Now, a person who's beholding this and is centered on these things, on the work of Christ, sees their identity as righteous. When they're centered on the work of the gospel, when they're centered on the work of Christ, when they're beholding Christ and the cross, that they see themselves as a child of God who has access, eternal, perfect access to their Father. And they see themselves as an ambassador because this is what God's up to in the world. We, we love and we, we go out into the community to make things that are broken right. We represent the kingdom a lot of ways. But the ultimate job of mission as the church, and this is an important thing for us to think about as a church, is not to go, what can we do for God and ask that he blesses it, you know? Like, what's the things that we could do some Jesus things? Let's do, the, the mission of every Christian and every church is to say, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? And how do we join in? I just want to be a part of what, God, I don't want to waste my life on what I want to do. I want to be a part of what you're doing. What an incredible invitation. Uh, we'll close with this. Last one. We behold the ways of Jesus. We behold the words of Jesus. As Christians, we want to center our lives around the work of Jesus. And now and on into eternity, we behold the worth of Jesus. The worth of Jesus. Um, you pay attention to the things that are worth your attention. You pay it like a currency. It's worth your attention. You go, okay, here. And so anytime, um, anytime there's another thing in my life that is consuming my attention, whatever it may be, whatever that thing is, whether it's the state of our country, the future of our country, I know that's a big one for a lot of us, whether it's our health, whether it's our condition, whether, whatever that thing is, if that's the thing you're giving ultimate attention to, you're saying it's worth more than anything this is worth all my anxiety that's what you're saying this circumstance is worth all my worry it's worth all my fear and what we find from time and time again that you know the way idols work those that those those idols is they promise you 
everything up front. You, you say, okay, I want everything that it has to offer. But in the end, it leaves you with nothing. It asks from you everything. Come on, give me all your anxiety. Give me, give me all your stress. And then it leaves you empty with nothing. It's, it's Jesus, by the way, who's the opposite. He gives you everything. He gives you everything. He pours out his very life for you. And in the end, you're, you're left with, with, the Bible says, in his presence, fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. forevermore. You were satisfied eternally only in him. Uh, this is what the center stage of heaven looks like. There's a worship service going on for all eternity. And heaven is where everything that's been spun out of focus is put right. There's no distractions around the throne room of God. The Bible says that there's a song that's being sung night in and night out in response to the worthiness of Jesus. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You are worth more than the thing that's been distracting me. You're my God. I worship you. Only you are worth the glory and the honor and the power. For you are the one who created all things, and it's by your will that they exist and were created. Where I give my ultimate worship. So, so again, this morning, I want to ask you that question. The principle that we are unpacking here is in the attention rule is that we become what we behold. So what is the thing or what, what are the things that, that are consuming your attention? What ideas need to be brought before the words of Jesus and completely upended with what's true as you behold his word? What ways have you been navigating on your own that need an interruption, that need some clarity from the ways of Jesus as you behold him, you're transformed by the Spirit to resemble his example. What other systems of your relationship to God have had center stage that need to be pushed aside? That's shaping you. Let's come back to the cross, which is the center stage of history, where Jesus makes sinners righteous. He makes slaves children. He makes enemies ambassadors. And let's center around the gospel and let's join with the song of heaven which says there's nothing worth my life and my attention more than Jesus. I'm consumed with him. He's, God has gotten my attention in his love, and now he's going to keep my attention as I keep coming back to him.